0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at Goldman. Whether it's blockchain, drones, or the Internet of Things, a handful of innovations are promising to reshape the competitive landscape of the information age. But artificial intelligence sits at the apex of them all, according to our guest today. I'm pleased to be joined by Heath Terry, Head Internet Analyst of Goldman Sachs Research and author of the firm's recent report on the disruptive potential of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Heath, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jake. So why do you consider artificial intelligence or AI the apex technology and what puts it at the top of the food chain? Artificial
1: intelligence is the science of teaching computers or getting computers or machines to act like human beings, to solve problems that prior required human intelligence. And so the apex of that, we believe, is getting to that point in this sort of information and data age that we're in, getting to that point where computers have the ability to behave like a human being and solve problems that require human. That really is the apex. If you even think about it in popular culture, when we think about what the future looks like. It's about having machines that can interact with humans, solve problems the way that humans do. And that's why we think of it as being the apex of this information age
0: technology. Just about 20 years ago, a computer beat chess grandmaster Garry Kasparov at his own game. How has AI advanced since then and what other technologies had to mature alongside AI for it to become what it is today?
1: The chess example's a good one because that sort of gave us the very first, here's what artificial intelligence potentially looks like. And you've got an example now in AlphaGo beating Go Grandmaster Lee Sedol that gives you another point in that evolution. The reason that's a big difference is because chess is something that you can study. It's something that you have very specific moves associated with it. And so if you look at every game of chess played, you have very defined rules,
0: repeatable and and mappable,
1: exactly. And if you know all of those defined moves and computers that can think fast enough can examine all of the possible moves and all of the possible moves off of that and come up with the best option. The reason that what we saw in the Go example was so important is you actually saw AlphaGo making moves that human players had never made before. And so it's a creative, creative, being creative, looking at something and coming up with their own solution to the problem. And so artificial intelligence in the way that we look at it now and when we talk about things like machine learning and deep learning is about going from a environment where humans create the rules for the computers to behave to humans giving the computers a problem or a situation and the computers coming up with their own way to solve it.
0: Over the years, AI has endured a lot of winters where investors soured on the technology, innovation slowed down. Why does it feel different this time to you?
1: You know, we have gone through these sort of fits and starts where there were big developments and everybody got excited and then we sort of hit a dead end. Most recently was the end of the 90s where AI was sort of officially declared a dead end science and you saw little development past the neural networks of the 90s. What's changed that now really is threefold. One data is much more available. AI needs data. You need really big data sets to train on. And because of all of the sensors, you mentioned the internet of things before, the sensors and devices and systems and cheap storage that's out there, not only are we creating a lot more data, but we've got the ability to store it. Secondly, you've got much faster compute systems that are out there now. Repurposing graphics processing units and the parallel processing that they're capable of into these AI systems gave us a level of speed that we didn't have before. You might be able to get the right answer in the past using the slower systems that we had, but it would take so long that it just wasn't really practical. Now, because of that, because of cloud computing platforms, it's gotten to a point where it's economically viable and makes sense. And then finally, the other development has been the development of these open source systems Torch, uh, Apache Spark, Berkeley's Cafe structure that allow developers to sort of stand on the shoulders of those who have developed before them and use the algorithms and systems that have been built to move the science forward without having to recreate the wheel every time they try and develop something.
0: So what can AI do for business? How do algorithms turn data sets that you talk about into a competitive advantage that can, as you say in your report, transform the global economy?
1: Really, we think the implications for this cut across every type of business, and we could talk all day about the ways that AI is being used in oil services, and healthcare, and financials, and agriculture, retail,
0: old-fashioned manufacturing.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Baidu's chief AI scientist compared it to electricity. Ultimately, this is something that's going to cut across everything. That said, you know, a practical example, you look at something like. Like healthcare. Google is currently using the National Institute of Health's records on cancer diagnoses to train. AI systems to diagnose cancer using MRIs and free up doctors from staring at a scan. And so you think about the shortage of physicians that we have in the world. You think about giving doctors the ability to spend more time with their patients or more time doing research that can only be done by humans. And the advantages to a business in terms of productivity and efficiency become
0: pretty apparent. What are particular uses of AI that you see as very promising? I mean, again, hard to narrow the field a little bit, but when you think about it as a business person, as an investor, what are the places where it seems most promising to really unlock new productivity gains or, or transform an industry?
1: So for us, it really comes down to two big use cases, making capital more efficient and making labor more efficient. So to use the oil services example or the energy example, think of an oil rig that has all of these pressure gauges and dials that you needed someone with years of experience, decades of experience to be able to sit in front of those and know that certain readings mean certain things, and certain readings mean you need maintenance, certain readings mean you have a problem developing. And that data really only existed on those gauges or maybe in a log book off to the side. Now that data is being fed real time into an AI system that's been trained for it that can actually begin to understand what do those readings look like in the days, weeks, maybe even months before there's a problem or before maintenance is needed and it makes that equipment that much more efficient and, and safer and safer and no. so ultimately seeing those cost decline that productivity increase that safety record improve is really where you start to get some tangible feed out of this
0: part of the business value as you said seems to come from its ability to interact with other cutting-edge technologies Some of your colleagues wrote about this in a research report called Profiles in Innovation. What are some of the significant pairings we'll see? Drones is an easy one.
1: We've written about drones. And so giving those drones the ability to deliver, understand flight paths, optimize for fuel consumption is one. Areas like the future of finance, you're already seeing AI and machine learning being used in financial services for things like risk management and portfolio optimization.
0: Compliance.
1: Um, (laughs) Compliance being a very big one. The future of manufacturing or advanced materials that are being developed, all of these things sort of have AI or machine learning running underneath it. We wrote in the report about the future of the farm, which is something agriculture, is something that we've written about as well in the Profiles and in Innovation series. And so pulling all of the data that's coming off of the advanced machinery, the tractors that all have these sensors in them feeding information that... Improves crop yields, tells you when and what kind of fertilizer to use, what you should actually look for in in the form of disease. It all ends up feeding together. And if it's done right, which we think it will be, it all becomes something that's sort of sitting in the background, making everything smarter in a way where we almost probably end up taking it for granted.
0: So some of the, today's most valuable companies are in the technology space, and we all know their names. Are the biggest players in the space already there, or is there room for a Google or a Facebook of AI to sort of emerge down the road?
1: Anytime you get a big technology shift like this or a new workload created in the way that machine learning and AI is, it's naive to think that the existing incumbents are going to be the ones that dominate it
0: it's really almost never happened
1: exactly and yep. so i think we look at the landscape right now and see massive advantages for the kind of companies that you mentioned there are certain things about ai where scale is a benefit big so they've data got the data set.
0: they've got the money
1: yep and processing power, power
0: right. and talent talent's a
1: really big part of this because that top of AI developers or machine learning developers that are out there are really exponentially more productive in terms of breaking ground in this area. And those people tend to want to go work for those big technology companies that are out there that have the capacity to pay them, to allow them the freedom to be able to research and make mistakes and find new avenues of research to go down. I think that ultimately does end up being a big advantage for those big companies, but again, something's going to break out here. There's some startup out there with the right combination of technologists and venture capitalists that have to create that next big company. Mm
0: -hmm. So if every company, the mature companies, the startups have to invest in AI or risk being left behind, you have to think we'll see a boom in AI enablers as we did during the internet revolution of the 90s. How do you see that playing out?
1: Well, so you think about the picks and shovels, the things that are being used to develop this. Right now, a lot of it's silicon. And so you look at the impact that this has had on companies that produce the GPUs and the field programmable arrays that are being used for training and inference in machine learning and AI. And they're doing pretty well right now Mm -hmm. and are expected to continue to do well, given the growth that's in front of these systems. The cloud platform, providers that are out there, they've all developed AI as a service type models that we expect will be how most companies end up engaging AI. A medium-sized retailer isn't going to go out and build their own AI division. Right. but They're going to rent it. Or right, exactly.
0: License it. or yeah. Part of what you call the emerging AI as a service industry they're talking about here, companies outsource the function. Why do you think that'll be a big driver of the creation of this market?
1: The big part is, is it democratizes this. It makes it accessible to that mid mid-sized retailer without having to have the scale to go out and put tens of billions of dollars into the servers and processing power and talent that they would need to actually develop this on their own.
0: Much the way the cloud has allowed a lot of people to develop without building their own. Exactly. Right. Will technological differences eventually sort of even out or be absorbed by M&A or how could it form the basis of a new industry?
1: You may see some of that M&A happening. We've already seen some of it. There have been companies bought and are, are being bought for massive premiums relative to the size of the actual company themselves because there's such a value being placed on the potential for where they're going. Over time, does that even out? Do you start to see AI as a service and the availability of these open source platforms make it easier for every company to participate? It's kind of what we expect. And ultimately, that creates a lot of vertical companies, companies that aggregate data together within, say, a specific area, whether it's healthcare or oil services or agriculture, that do create new companies that go beyond just sort of the big horizontal platforms that we believe for the most part are already
0: out there. Goldman's chief economist, Jan Hatzius has written about the productivity paradox, essentially a big debate amongst economists about why we're not seeing more productivity gains given the technological boom that we're witnessing. So are you optimistic or you are optimistic about AI's ability to boost productivity? Why haven't we seen that really play out yet in the numbers?
1: Part of it is, this is just really new. But if you think about the last big productivity boom that we had, it was the tech-driven productivity boom of the 90s, and we think this has the potential to set off that same kind of productivity boom, largely because if you look at the way that AI is used, It's all about efficiency. It's all about improving productivity. It's making those doctors that we talked about before smarter and more efficient. It's making logistic systems faster and more efficient. And when you do that across an entire economy, you start to see those benefits. It also ultimately, ends up encouraging more investment because now you've raised the rate of return that you're getting in these various industries so that we potentially break out of this capex stall that we've also been in, which has been related to Where a lot of
0: profits just been gone back into buybacks and dividends and the like, and we could see another wave of capital investment. Exactly. I mean, the big question that everyone debates is, will AI and robots just take over jobs or will the jobs change?
1: it's a realistic concern, right? Especially on an individual level. If you're that driver that is looking at the future of autonomous cars that are all AI driven, yeah, you kind of have to think about what kind of an impact that's gonna have. At the same time, that's the reality of technology that we've been with for over 200 years. You look back into the late 1700s and 90% of the US population was engaged in agriculture. That's 3% now. And yet we still eat. And yet we still eat and we still have jobs. And so, you know, as we go- But we do
0: podcasts now.
1: Well, (laughs) because we have to eat, right? Exactly. And so that's the way this works. The US economy is very good at destroying jobs. It's also really good at creating jobs. And, you know, fortunately for us, we've got 200 years of experience that shows that generally we're better at creating and can create more jobs than we destroy in these technology cycles. We think that's going to be the same case here in AI. I think it's very telling Five years ago, Stanford's machine learning class had 40 students and one teaching assistant. Right now it has 40 teaching assistants and 500 students. Those people are going to have jobs.
0: Yeah, no doubt. You've been pretty optimistic the whole way through and consistently optimistic and so far proven right. What are the roadblocks though? What could stop AI from really transforming the economy in the way that you're envisioning or at least slow it down?
1: Sure. The biggest thing is the economy, as John points out, the economy is massive. It takes a lot to move those needles. And so we'll have to see, you know, is this going to be a big enough and powerful enough trend that those little two, three percent gains in efficiency here and there add up to a big enough number to actually move the needle. We also have to make sure that we don't hit a wall on the technology again. There are limitations and we do run into these things with any new technology. Right now, a lot of the AI systems that are out there are dealing with bottlenecks. It still takes a long time to train a system. The silicon's not as fast as it should be. and in some level, we're only using 4% of the dye on most of these GPUs. And so we'll have to break through some barriers on the technology side in order for this to really fulfill the potential that we think that it has.
0: And sometimes when you're trying to transform an industry, you run into the fact that the laws and regulations really are set up for an industry the way it's historically been and makes it hard to transform it as well. We're seeing that a little bit with driverless cars today.
1: Yeah, that's the risk. and It's one of the things that we talk about in the report is that companies and even countries are going to have to change to adopt this. And we're seeing this in the case of drones is when technology is presented with a restrictive region, they don't just stop they go somewhere that's not as restrictive so there's a reason that amazon is doing their drone development in the uk and not in the u.s and i think there's the reason that we're seeing autonomous driving take off in singapore before it's even getting started here in the u.s and it's because you've got a more open regulatory system you obviously have to balance those things for all of the other sort of concerns that go along with it around safety but ultimately the technology is not going to slow down or stop. And for countries to make sure that they're staying ahead of this, they want to make sure that they've got the right regulatory framework around it.
0: Great. Thank you, Heath. It was great to have you again. Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening.
2: This podcast was recorded on December 2nd, 2016.